episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by Zephyr CMS. It's a modern cloud-based CMS system that's licensed only to agencies. You can find them at zephyrcms.com. More about this later in the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz and my guest today is Jamie Lieberman. She is an entrepreneur, speaker, and practicing attorney and founder of Hashtag legal. So we're going to talk about legal stuff today. We're not going to talk about marketing, but you know, sometimes these things intersect. So Jamie, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So get, let, let's hear your story. How did you get here to being the founder and CEO of Hashtag Legal? I suspect there's a journey. There not there always a journey? <laughs> <laughs> so true. So I've been a lawyer for about 15 years. And the first half of my career was very traditional law practice, big law, New York City, federal government, and it was everything you think it was, <laughs> not being that positive. So about seven years ago, I decided, I think it's time for me to figure out another way to practice that fit more me. Uh, so I, I left my job and started freelancing to try and sort of find my way. I had had, you know, seven or eight years of legal experience and felt comfortable enough to go out on my own, but wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. But at the same time, I myself was a blogger so many years ago. So I had a blog uh, about living in New York City when I was much years past, uh, pre-kids. <laughs> and it got really popular. So um, when I stopped you know, working at the government, when and I started up a blog again, because I thought it might be kind of fun. And at that time, about seven years ago, bloggers were starting to make a little bit of money. The word influencer didn't even exist yet. And um, I started working for a company that ran conferences for bloggers. And they asked me about six years ago, hey, do you think you may want to give a talk about legal issues for bloggers? And I thought, yeah, that's kind of interesting. Now let me figure out what those are. So I did. And I gave the talk. And that's actually where Hashtag Legal came from. And I started working um, with bloggers, now influencers, and that quickly expanded into creatives and entrepreneurs, service professionals, and marketers. Yeah. So I'm guessing the the, the name Hashtag and then thrown together with Legal, um, there is a focus on kind of the online world. Would that be accurate? Yeah, definitely. We we absolutely have a large number of clients who uh, live and work in the online world. All right. So what's unique about Hashtag um, Legal in terms of you, we've talked a little bit about who you serve, but is there some way in which you serve them that is different than, you know, me going to the, the small law office down the street here? Yeah, sure. So we are also entrepreneurs and creatives and people who understand what it's like to run that business. So I often think many of my clients are what I call reluctant entrepreneurs. They're really good at something and legal usually isn't what they're interested in focusing on. So they kind of avoid it. Some people don't avoid it, but they sort of don't want to deal with it. And some people actively avoid it. Um, and so we try to make legal accessible uh, and not scary uh, by talking about it in plain language so that it is approachable. It's easy. Um, we are an all-female virtual law firm. So we do that on purpose because many of our clients, that's how they are. So we come to the clients and communicate with them as best as served for them versus most lawyers who communicate the way they want to communicate and don't really think much about how comfortable or uncomfortable their client may feel with that mode of communication. So I got clients who are slacking me and messaging me and DM, they're in my DMs and 
you know, we move it to the proper channels, but I'm, I'm open to that. Uh, and I like to give a lot of information. So we're really transparent. Um, and we just like to work in a way that feels comfortable um, and more accessible than, say, your average lawyer, who is um, oftentimes, many of my clients have said they feel like they don't even understand what they do, let alone being able to uh, advise them on how to protect and grow their businesses. So I think a lot of people are used to hiring an attorney when something bad happens. You know, they, they get sued, somebody doesn't pay them, you know, whatever, you know, those things are. Are there some things that you think that more small business owners, more entrepreneurs need to be thinking about in terms of legal and like locking down, you know, just as a matter of course? Absolutely. I actually think if more people did those company audits, had a really good lawyer as a partner in their business, that there'd be less non-paying clients and less fearful calls. Um, so I think it's really good to, to sit down. Every business is different, but depending on what your business is, particularly, for example, if you're a service professional, you live and die by your contract. Um, and I don't mean the like Frankenstein contract that you got from your friend who got from their friend who then like pulled seven things offline or the template you bought. I mean, a lawyer who actually sat down, understands what it is that you do and created a contract that works for you and that's flexible and that can move as you need to move because everybody's business is different. So contracts are a big one. Uh, intellectual property, particularly if you are a creator or a creative, um, understanding what it means when you create for others, or if you are putting information out into the universe, what that means in order to protect the information that you're creating is important. So that's your intellectual property. Also your trademarks, your names. Um, a lot of people sort of pick a cool name and then a couple years later think, should look into this and see if I can use it or register it for a trademark and then somebody else has it or, you know, there's a million stories. So those are some good examples of ways that you can um, get around the, oh my gosh, scrambling phone call. <laughs> so particularly since you talked about working with uh, creatives, um, you know, in a lot of cases, they just, you know, a hug as a contract, right? Um, you know, <laughs> Yeah, I know I'm, I'm being facetious, but I mean, you know, contracts can can actually not be very customer friendly or not feel very customer friendly. I mean, how do you balance that? I mean, you know, the traditional law firm that you used to work for, you know, probably had contracts that, you know, were basically 100 percent one sided to like screw anybody who signed it. Um, I mean, that's, unfortunately, that's reality. So how do you balance kind of the. Hey, this is good for all of us. I think that's how all contracts actually should be written. And it, I find it really frustrating and unnecessary when they are so one-sided for no reason. I read a lot of talent agreements or book deals, book deals. Oh, they can be the bane of my existence, particularly for a first time author, because um, they are often incredibly one-sided and they don't need to be. Uh, and so I find that when sitting down to talk to a business owner about their contract, I talk to them about where, what are your deal breakers? What are the ones that you, you cannot give on? And we make those, the ironclad, we're not going to negotiate those. But there are some other clauses to that particular business owner that may be a little more flexible. So maybe we can make them a little bit, I'm not saying one-sided, but a little, we may be able to negotiate them with clients who care about that particular position. Or maybe we just make it straight down the road. Contracts don't have to be these like awful documents that make you want to like throw up when you have to look at them with two columns and font six and it's single spaced and it's 75 pages long. 
it just is un, it's overkill and unnecessary and there's no reason for it. So we just try to create contracts that our clients understand and can read themselves and explain to their clients so that they understand why they have that clause. There's no unnecessary language. So do you find that there are certain, I don't know what we want to call them, but certain places where, where small business owners get tripped up, I don't know, gotchas or something like that, come back and, and maybe kind of, you know, bite the majority of people, you know, in the, the, the don't, uh, you know, don't address them. Are there certain things that, that you definitely ought to be a little worried about as a business owner? That's a great, you mean within the context of a contract? Um, I not necessarily a contract, oh, or just, just in general. Yeah, sure. What are, what are some of the ones that, that, t- that if you're going to have trouble, <laughs> here are some of the ways they're going to be. Non-paying clients yeah. is a big one. Yeah. That's a tough one. Yeah. Um, the scope of work is also a tough one. The TBDs that everyone likes to put into contracts and then nobody actually TBDs it. <laughs> so they're just vague. Um, is, you know, revisions when you're creating for somebody else. And those are really, those are the mo- the common ways that I see that there starts to be an issue. Um, not having clear boundaries around termination. How do you terminate? What happens when a contract gets terminated? Because the fact is not every relationship is going to be perfect. And it may come a time where you either one-sidedly or mutually agree, you know what, we just need to part ways. This isn't a fit. And that's okay. It's business. It's not personal. Um, And having clearly written out guidelines for what that means in terms of ownership of work product and payments and refunds, that's that's a big place that I see a lot of ways if it had been done well up front, there would be nothing to argue about. Um, Partnership agreements is our another one. Uh, partners uh, that come together and don't put agreements in place. Um, Everybody's really happy when a business starts, but when a business ends, it is probably the number one most expensive thing that can happen in a business is when two partners split and can't amicably resolve it. Those litigations can go on and on and they are so expensive. I'll tell you in the online world, I, I would also say kind of the opposite. We're talking about, you know, a business owner kind of protecting themselves, you know, in, in dealing with folks. But I can't tell you how many ridiculous agreements I've seen that small business owners have signed for like their website, um, which oh gosh, they, yes. they, you know, and there's like, no, we're, you know, we're going to get a new, and it happens all the time because my company comes in and helps them like fix their website. And then we learn that, no, that, that company owns it. If you're not going to pay us anymore, you know, everything's ours. You sign that deal. Um, and it's, it's heartbreaking. I've seen so many of these SEO companies that come in and there are these hidden clauses that essentially give them an ownership piece, even after termination. Uh, I've seen some crazy stuff in some of those contracts and a lot of people don't, I, in my opinion, it is so rare that you would actually ever sign the first draft of an agreement. There's always a back and forth. There should be a negotiation. And so many small business owners don't feel like they have the power to do it. uh, And so they don't. Uh, And I definitely agree. That's a great point. You know, today content is everything. So our websites are really content management systems, but they've got to work like one. Check out Zephyr. It is a modern cloud-based CMS system that's licensed only to agencies. It's really easy to use. It's very fast. It won't mess with your SEO. I mean, it really reduces the time and effort to to launch uh, your clients' websites. Beautiful themes, just really fast 
profitable way to go. They include an agency services to really kind of make a, them your plug-and-play dev shop. Check out Zephyr.com. That is Z-E-P-H-Y-R-C-M-S.com. So we haven't talked about employees. Um, where, again, I know you're working with maybe a lot of solopreneurs, but um, so maybe it's even, you know, the virtual, um, you know, part-time employee. Um, where do you see, um, you know, employee issues coming up with, uh, with in the legal space? So we actually have a, uh, like our clients, actually, it's funny. We have clients that have as many as 80 employees and some as many as they're just their own. So we see a wide range of employment issues in this space. In particular, virtual workforces can get really complex. The larger you become, I have a client who has employees in I'd say 40 States. And so we're navigating 40 different state laws uh, for employment issues. And so that is, can be really challenging. Um, the other thing that really comes up in a lot of people, particularly now with California's new law, um, is contractors versus employees. Uh, you know, people who want to pay someone as a contractor when in fact they probably are an employee. And I've seen clients rack up crazy fines from a state for an, a mischaracterized employee. Um, so that's another issue. And theft of clients. Not having an employment agreement in place when you do either contractor or employee to make sure that you don't, it's not a non compete because a lot of people think, oh, non competes are not enforceable. And that as a blanket rule is actually not true. There are ways you can make in certain states enforceable non competes, but where you can really protect yourself is non solicitation clauses, meaning you can't solicit my clients, you can't solicit my employees, and you can't solicit my contractors. Um, so there's ways that you can protect yourself. And I think a lot of employees, employers are either afraid to approach it because um, they don't want to lose talent or they think they just can't when in fact you can. All right, let's get really geeky. Um, are you dealing with any GDPR and CCPA issues? Privacy laws, my friend. Yes, <laughs> we do a lot. Um, we spent a ton of time on CCPA. I mean, we still are. Maybe unpack that a little bit. Like where are people, you know, there's a lot of like scary sounding, you know, things about being, you know, billion dollar fines. And, you know, where's the typical small business who, you know, has a website, does email, you know, marketing to their clients. I mean, where are they really exposed in that? So really you have to look at whether or not it even applies to you. And so that's going to be looking at numbers. You know, the 50,000 residents is usually if you're selling data, um, which some companies do, then there you go. But sale of data is ha, doesn't necessarily have what you think of um, as a layperson. Uh, it means something different under CCPA. So digital ads um, are sale of data. And so if you run a website that creates content and has digital ads, then you are likely involved in the sale of data. So it is important to understand, and this is what I say about privacy in general, it terrifies people because there's about a thousand laws that could potentially apply. There's no one law, right? Like when we have to pay our taxes, we go look at the tax code, but for privacy, there's like 50 laws. Some of them may apply. Some of them may not. States don't agree with states and California does everything first. Federal governments, they're not involved. They have some stuff. And so really my recommendation to every business owner who collects data of any kind, and that is email addresses, that could be IP addresses, that could be the heat map that's on your website. If you're using um, certain plugins, if you have lead pages, for example, um, things like that. So do an audit, sit down and look at the back end of your site and really understand what every single plugin and provider 
provider is doing and what data they're collecting and what permission you've given. Because as the website owner, as the business, as defined under CCPA, it's your responsibility to tell your users what data you're collecting, if you're selling it and what you're doing with it. Um, And that's not a bad thing uh, to know that about your business. Yeah. The first thing you need to do is breathe though, right? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, take breaths. There should never be panic. There really shouldn't. Everybody freaks out. I'm like, no, just take a breath. You're going to spend two hours. You're going to time block on your calendar. You're going to take two hours. You're going to look at your plugins or find someone who's a good privacy lawyer and have them do it for you. (laughs) I I think there are, you know, there's a whole subset of, you know, just privacy technology people, you know, that, that understand, you know, what is happening, you know, at, you know, when your website paints, you know, so uh, that, you know, that, that can be another place to look, but it, uh, I know, I remember when GDPR, you know, had this deadline looming, you know, people were like, you know, losing sleep, <laughs> you know, and it, you know, and like you said, I'm glad you said that first. In a lot of cases, it didn't really apply to them that much. So, all right, let's end up with, I have some podcast listeners and I suspect that there probably are some legal issues that podcasters, little old people like myself should be thinking about. What what are those uh, in your estimation that apply to podcasters? Uh, Podcasters have the same, you know, naming is a good, a big one in the podcast world, whether or not you're going to one, pick a name that you can use or two, you know, you want to trademark protect that name. Um, Releases from your guests. If you ever want to repurpose uh, the content that you've created, getting a release from your guests when they join is much easier than having to go back to them and say, hey, I'm writing this book and I want to include you. Um, and so that's often a place that podcasters overlook. I'm, I do a lot of podcasts and most people don't ask for them and it's fine, you know, but sometimes um, they come back and they're like, can I use that? And, you know, then they have to go down the route. So um, it is helpful to, to have uh, releases from your podcast guests. Yeah, I would say on that note, if you're going to try to use it in a book uh, and you have a mainstream publisher, they're going to ask for it anyway. So, you know, so get it, you know, ahead of time. Uh, but uh, but, I, you know, fortunately, I work in the marketing world and all the people I talk to, you know, are thrilled if I write about them. And so right. exactly. <laughs> exactly. But not everybody but, is has a, everybody. a marketing podcast. Music is a big one, a really big one, you know, and use of just anything of someone else's. <laughs> so when in doubt, get permission, uh, make sure you have a license, make sure the license that you have allows you to use whatever it is that you're using of someone else's in the way you want to use it. Yeah. So I wasn't going to ask this, but you just reminded me of, of the stock photo sites Ah, yes. <laughs> that uh, uh, decided that they couldn't sell photos anymore. So they were going to go extract <laughs> um, fines. Um, if you get that, oh gosh, there's a picture from some stock photo site on my website and they're telling me I owe $700. What do I do with that? So there's a few things that you can do. Um, one, you want to investigate whether or not they have um, the company that is sending you this letter has a copyright registration. If they have a registered copyright um, and you used the photo without permission or you use the photo without a license in some way, uh, then you may be on the hook. However, my recommendation is anybody who downloads images, just save the license next to the image in a folder. Uh, that way, if someone comes back to you a couple of years later, you can say, oh, I downloaded it. And here's the license that I had when I downloaded it. And then if you have that proper license, they'll go away. Um, if you don't have a license, if you took it from somebody's website because five years ago you didn't know any better, 
you may have to pay a fine. Um, try to negotiate though. You don't have to, you don't have to pay the first thing. Some, most places like Pixie and, and a lot of those places, they'll negotiate down with you. They kind of aim high expecting you're going to pay less, but if they have a valid copyright registration, if you're infringing on it, there's not much you can do. It doesn't matter how many people saw it. If you made money off of it, there's pretty strict liability when it comes to copyright infringement. So don't do it. <laughs> well, to- totally. I, I, I think it's really more the people that get that surprise, you know, letter. And I've seen, you know, 10, not, I think the highest I've seen is, is, you know, somebody wanted like $1,500 when you could go on license, you could go license that same image, you know, for eternity for $4. Um, I've seen six figures. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, there again, I think um, that's one. I I mean, I may be wrong, but it looked to me like they weren't really trying to protect their copyright so much because those pictures really had no value anymore. They really were just Mm -hmm. trying to extract a new revenue stream. But yeah, there's, there's (laughs) many websites that do that. Um, I think that, you know, kind of from a policy perspective, uh, copyright law is the way that it is for a reason, but it it also allows people to exploit it. And I think that is, that stinks. Honestly, sometimes I get these letters and it's just, there's photographers that do this for a living. They take a lot of photographs, they batch register them and then they put them up and then they do Google reverse Google searches. They have lawyers who are on contingency who just send letters and letters and letters and letters. We came across one. They ask for minimum of $10,000, if not more. And the lawyer doesn't care. He'll file lawsuits. He'll, he'll, they'll go. And they're very difficult to deal with and very hard to negotiate with. So it, it, it's unfortunate and it's, it's true. Sorry, I took us down that rabbit hole. Let's end on a, on a happy note, shall we? Uh, tell people where they can find out more about hashtag legal and the work that you're doing, Jamie. Sure. So our website's hashtag-legal.com. Um, I also have a podcast. My podcast is the Fearless Business Podcast. We talk about all the stuff everyone's afraid of in their business, but shouldn't be. <laughs> we try to make it easy and accessible. Um, we're on Instagram, hashtag underscore legal. And you can contact me directly, Jamie's J-A-M-I-E at hashtag-legal.com. Awesome. I appreciate you stopping by and uh, hopefully we'll uh, run into you someday out there on the road. Thanks. Thanks.